0: Our New Testament reading today is from Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood up in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way, for as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown god what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you the god who made the world and everything in it he who is lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are, too, we, too, are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. The woman said to Jesus, "Sir." I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. All praise to you, O Christ.
1: Let's pray. God, we bless you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your kindness toward us, your faithfulness faithfulness to us in Jesus. Uh, We thank you for your word and your spirit, and we pray now that as we open your scriptures and consider them, that you would be near to us, and we pray that you would be actively at work in and among us, and we pray that you would use this time to grow us up to be more like Jesus, uh, to build up this church, uh, and to further the movement of your spirit in this place. So we commit our time to you now, in Christ's name. Amen. What wisdom are you following? Or in other words, what wisdom is it that guides the steps of your life? What wisdom do you seek, and where do you go to seek it? I think these are important questions, whether we spend much time these days actually actively reflecting on that or not, they really do get at the core of like what makes us tick and where we, where we go as we seek to move toward the future. Um, I recently reread uh, an op-ed from last year's New York Times. David Brooks wrote an op-ed last April, 2021, uh, called Wisdom Isn't What You Think It Is, uh, which uh, is a nice little piece, and he writes this. Too often, the public depictions of wisdom involve remote elderly sages who you approach with trepidation and who give the perfect life-altering advice. Yoda, Dumbledore, Solomon. When a group of individual academics sought to define wisdom, they focused on how much knowledge a wise person had accumulated. Wisdom, they wrote, was, quote, an expert knowledge system concerning the fundamental pragmatics of life. But, Brooks writes, when wisdom has shown up in my life, it's been less a body of knowledge and more a way of interacting, less the dropping of secret information, more a way of relating that helped me stumble to my own realizations. The really good confidants, the people we go to for wisdom, are more like story editors than sages. They take in your story, accept it, but prod you to reconsider it so you can change your relationship to your past and future. They ask you to clarify what it is you really want or what baggage you left out of your clean tail. They ask you to probe for the deep problem that underlies the convenient surface problem you've come to them with. It is this skillful, patient process of walking people to their own conclusions that feels like wisdom. Maybe that's why Aristotle called ethics a social practice. The knowledge that results is personal and contextual, not a generalization or a maxim that you could put in a book of quotations. And Brooks goes on to say this, we live in an ideological age which reduces people to public categories, red, blue, black, white, and pulverizes the personal knowledge I'm talking about here. But we all have the choice to see people as persons, not types. As the educator Parker Palmer put it, the shape of our knowledge becomes the shape of our living. I love that. And I offer it here because as I think about what I hope for in the resurrection community, what I hope we want and what we're becoming is the kind of community that values wisdom and that actually practices this dynamic that Brooks is talking about of being story editors together where we are inviting one another into this dynamic relational reality, where we're trying to make sense of our own lives, our own past, our present, even our future hopes and dreams, in light of the story of God, in light of the story of Christ and the scriptures, in light of the story God is telling about the world that we encounter in the scriptures, in the testimony of the church throughout the ages, and in the lived community here, of the people of resurrection. And I think this kind of wisdom seeking, this story editing together, it's the opposite of indoctrination, right? If you think of indoctrination as this coercive or manipulative, making you believe what I believe and forcing it somehow by force or punishing you for noncompliance, this is the exact opposite of that. It's a humble and open-handed dynamic of seeking together the will and way of God. And I think that kind of dynamic is also not only the opposite of indoctrination, I think it's also the antidote to the kind of polarization that is crippling us societally right now. And it really shapes us against the grain of the individualism and ideology of our age. Because it's a dynamic that shapes us in love. Love for one another as we engage one another. Love for God and the kind of love for neighbor God calls us to in Jesus. So what wisdom do you seek and how do you seek it? What wisdom will we seek as a community and how will we seek it? I think it's an important question for us to sit with and to navigate together. And it's an important question too for the Greeks. They were a wisdom-oriented culture. And Paul, in this episode of the story of Acts, finds himself in Athens, like the wisdom capital of the world, right? Uh, And what we see here is this story of what happens when Paul finds himself in that place. So we're going through Acts. We've been doing that all summer and now fall, we're into the story. And if if you're just picking up where we left off last week, last week we were with Paul in Philippi in Macedonia, which was a dramatic episode. Um, if you were not here or missed that, feel free to go back and read that in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, or go and watch the video on YouTube of what we did with that last week. But um, but, la- but that we left Paul leaving Philippi. And so from there, what happens is Paul travels west by land. He passes through a few places before stopping in Thessalonica, um, where he shared the news about Jesus. And once again, in Thessalonica, we see... Um, Conflict with religious leaders, and we see them attacking the house of a guy named Jason who had offered hospitality to Paul and Silas and the crew. And so we see Paul and Silas slip away under the cover of night, and they go from there to Berea, Things go better for them in Berea until the people in Thessalonica hear that it's going better in Berea and they send their people to go mix things up. And so you got people from Thessalonica showing up in Berea. They agitate the crowd. You got more trouble. And so they send Paul away toward the sea uh, and then Silas and Timothy stay behind in Berea to finish whatever unfinished business they had there before leaving that church simply in the hands of of local leaders. So Paul gets in with this crew who's ferrying him south down the sea. Um, so, he's, so think of this as the Aegean Sea. If you can picture Greece and Turkey uh, on your globe, you've got the sea in between those shores, the Aegean. He's going on the Western shore down the, the Greek coast. Uh, and they take him as far as Athens, where they leave him. And then Paul gives them instructions to go back and get Silas and Timothy. He said, bring them to me as soon as, they can, as, soon as you can. And he's gonna wait in Athens until they show up. So that's where we are. Paul is in Athens, this world famous city that's home to some of the architectural and cultural wonders of the ancient world. And at the time that Paul's there, Athens is a little bit past its prime. You know, it's got a little sort of like Philly, you know, we're famous for things that happened a while ago. Um, Athens, we're talking about about 400 years has passed since the days of like Plato and Aristotle and Alexander the Great. Um, and so, but that history and that city's legacy and reputation are widely known, well-known. And Paul finds himself in this classic city whose skyline is probably like more impressive than anything he's ever seen up to this point. I remember when I was 12, um, and I flew by myself for the first time. My, my best friend moved to New York from Atlanta, and I got to actually fly by myself on a plane from Atlanta to New York, where his parents met me. That's back when you could like go to the gate without having a boarding pass, you know, those days. Uh, and so, but I remember flying into New York and seeing the Manhattan skyline from the plane, where it's like, I'd been in cities before, but not New York, and you just see it and just like the, just how massive and dense and, and tall everything is. And it's impressive, right? To see something that is unlike anything you've seen before. I imagine Paul rolling into Athens would have had some kind of like eye popping experience where you come in, and I don't know how many of you have ever been to Athens, but even now seeing some of these things as ancient and ruined as they are, it's still staggeringly impressive to see the Acropolis with the Parthenon up on top of it, that ancient temple to Athena, the patron goddess of the city, or to see the ruins of the temple to the Olympian Zeus, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The city was full of these incredible structures, right? And Luke tells us, Luke is the the author telling the story in Acts. He tells us that Paul, as he enters the city, is feeling distressed because he's observing the idolatry of the city. I mean, these huge buildings, these huge impressive structures are temples to the gods, right? And Paul is feeling in his own soul, distress over what he's observing in this place. And Paul being Paul does what he does. He's going into the synagogue and then he's going into the marketplace, the place, the synagogue where the Jewish people gathered To share thoughts, and the marketplace where your average Athenians would be uh, going and where the philosophers and folks would go and and share thoughts. And as he goes, he's telling them about the story of Jesus. He's, He's sharing the news that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and he encounters in the marketplace people who are bothered by what he's saying. And Luke tells us that he's encountering Epicureans and Stoics among these folks, and Epicureans and Stoics were um, two of the the four schools of thought in Athens that had subsidized chairs uh, in Athens, along with the Platonists and the Peripatetics. And the Epicureans were basically philosophers who held to a kind of materialistic philosophy that saw pleasure as the chief end in life. Um, and not primarily the pleasures of the material, of like food and drink and stuff, but pleasures of the mind as even the highest good. You know, um, the Stoics were um, sort of founded around the same time. Each each school of thought sees its like recognizes its founder from like fourth century BC times. Um, So the Epicureans looking back to Epicurus, the Stoics looking back to Zeno of Cyprus. And the Stoics believe that there's this divine rational ordering principle running through all things, kind of like the divine in everything bringing order. And so the Stoics saw as a highest good a kind of self-sufficiency and autonomy, a kind of like harmony with the rational uh, and a conforming to the rational order of all things. Um, They had a high emphasis on... um, ethical principles, civic duty, definitely a primacy of the rational over the emotional, stuff like that. So these are the people Paul's encountering. Um, and Luke describes them as they spend their days kind of like trafficking and nothing but new ideas, right? He's describing them as kind of like dilettantes, lazy, busybodies who are just, they don't, they don't get a real job, right? It's sort of one of those ways of describing these people. And so here they are, and they're in the marketplace, they encounter Paul. And it says that, Paul then is finds himself in front of the in, before the Areopagus or in the midst of the Areopagus So the Areopagus is a word that can mean two things um, it's a hill specifically Mars Hill like Mars Ares Mars is the Roman name Ares the Greek name of the god of War and there's a big rock that they call the Areopagus or Mars Hill that's one meaning of the word but there's also a council of people that got its name from that rock and Probably in the context of the story, it's the council more than the rock that is in view here. And that council is essentially the group that would, um, in a free city like Athens, have the responsibility of keeping order in the city. And when there was a new teaching, this is the group that would consider it and kind of weigh it as is this helpful or not helpful to preserving the religious customs and the social order in this place. So the Areopagus functioned kind of like a court. It could uh, could actually issue verdicts and dispense justice uh, when needed. And so we probably should recognize this context as adversarial. Paul's probably being um, heard in a suspicious way by people in the marketplace who who are calling him babbler or teacher of these foreign divinities and they're bringing him before the council. He's finding himself before an authoritative group that's now gonna weigh what he's talking about and make some sort of ruling. And so in Paul's day, that council actually didn't meet up on the rock. They met down below the rock at this place, the Stoa Baselios, just off the Agora. So that's where this is happening. Paul's there, and what I think is fascinating when we consider this encounter is the way Luke tells the story of Paul's approach to this group and explaining himself and his message to this group. Luke's taking great care to present this in a particular way. It was like a formal rhetorical structure to this section. And I love just everything that happens here. It's really fascinating. So you see Paul, he starts where they are with this point of contact, right? I see that everywhere you are religious people. He's also starting, we should say, not just rhetorically where they are. He's starting physically where, they, like he's showing up in the marketplace where these people hang out and talk about stuff, right? So he's actually going where they are. And as he's beginning to engage them, he begins to engage them on common ground. So he appreciates their common ground and he's acknowledging God's common grace to all people. He's not starting with his distress over their idolatry and flagging it, right? I think this is really fascinating. We know he's feeling the distress because Luke tells us, but the way Paul inhabits the space, the way he shows up for this group is not first as a complainer who's flagging what they're doing wrong, but he shows up speaking the same language that they speak. He shows up presenting what he's offering as plausibly as possible. To this group of people. So he starts by appreciating their common ground, right? Saying that God made every nation of humanity to live on the earth. So they should seek God and feel their way toward God. And he starts talking about how God is not actually far away. God's really near to all of us. Uh, he starts talking about how God isn't just in these temples, you know, made with human hands. He's not worshiped just by these gold and silver statue things that you make, but, but God is actually the creator of all things and God is near. And he even starts quoting their own poets, right? He's quoting Epimenides or Eratos. He's quoting these, these well known writers from their time and using those words to point toward the plausibility of what he's going to share with them about Jesus. It's really fascinating. And, I, and, I, and what he does then is he, he actually identifies the questions or the longings that are lingering here among this people, this unknown God, right? And the temple they have to this unknown God. And he, he kind of puts his finger there and, and uses that as like an invitation to introduce them to the God he knows that they don't. And so he begins to talk about how this temple to the unknown God is evidence that there's like something more that they acknowledge but don't yet know. And so he's offering to to share with them not just a foreign thing that's coming from the outside that they may or may not receive, but actually something that from within their own expressions of belief and longing that they claim to already have some sense of. And he's picking up on what's actually within them that he can help them identify and know more deeply. And so he starts to identify this unknown God as the creator of all things, the God who has made all of humanity, the God who is near to us all, who's everywhere. And he starts with that before then landing on this place of the uniqueness of the message that he carries. But he does get there. And he begins to talk about Jesus and how God raised this one person from the dead. And that in doing that thing of raising this one person from the dead, God's giving the assurance to all of us that this is the one in whom wisdom resides. This is the one through whom we know God. And he calls them to recognize the unique importance of Jesus. He calls them to turn from those idolatrous practices that he's identifying among them, but he's doing it about as winsomely and plausibly as you can imagine in the context where he is. He doesn't get all into the backstory, right? When he talks to Jewish people who know the scriptures, he really gets into the backstory of all that God has been doing all over time that leads up to Jesus. But among these people who don't know that story, he starts in a different place and he takes a really different approach to introducing them to God in Jesus. But they hit this stumbling block on the resurrection of the dead. Because you see, in Greek thought, the bodily and the material were less than, and the rational, the ideal was the greater good, right? So to to insinuate or to even state that God so loves the bodily, the earthy, the material, that God would bring it back from death and give it a kind of dignity of the highest order. That just wasn't a message that many Greeks are eager to hear. It just really goes against the grain of the way that they're looking at the world. And so many scoffed at this notion. Others mocked, right? Some wanted to hear more, but some believed. And what we begin to see in this place is this city, Athens, this classic city, becomes home to a new fledgling church of people following Jesus, where these people are beginning to believe as they're hearing Paul. When I was in high school, I read a, a book called Everyone is Right. There was essentially a book about how all religions lead to the same place. And um, it was a book I got from my dad, who had pretty much walked away from the faith at that point, um, and uh, he, gave, he gave to me as a, as a you know, sort of a, a book he had found helpful. And I read it at age like 16. It struck me as helpful. And it struck me as also kind of like shedding a light on how, okay, all religions are kind of doing the same thing. And they're all kind of, you know, sort of start from the same place, end up in the same place. And if you just sort of look at the shared text, you'll find a whole lot of commonality. And everybody just wants to be the ones who are doing it right. So you can kind of walk away from the whole thing and just be a good person. It made sense to me at the time, but... What I really think is a better angle on that, a more plausible angle to me, more convincing, is um, something I read in in, uh, Sky Jatani's book, *With* that we read several years ago as a City Church Reads program. But in that opening chapter, Jatani talks about how it's not that religions all lead to the same place. It's actually the opposite way of looking at it that we should be looking at it. The religions of the world all start in the same place. And then they lead in very, very, very different directions. But where do they start? The religions of the world begin in the human experience that we all share. Our experiences of wonder, of suffering, of sensing that there's something more, of having big questions, of like wanting to see the world be what it ought to be, right? The religions of the world are these human-made structures or whatever that, that, that help put language and practice and ritual and whatever doctrine around those common human longings and experiences. And what Paul is seeing in Athens is what it looks like when this group of people gives expression to those longings according to the wisdom that they follow. What Paul is carrying though is not the same as every other human made religion in the world, because what Paul is carrying is a message of something God has directly done. And what Paul is ultimately sharing isn't a religion as much as it is news, that the living God has actually done something unique and transformative in the person of Jesus. And that the spirit of the living God has now been unleashed in the world as this direct activity by God's own agency. It's not a religion, it's a movement. Now that's not to say religions are bad. That's not to say whatever. It's simply to acknowledge we make religions, human beings, and they may be more helpful or less helpful in actually cultivating the things of God, right? We have our practices, we have our liturgies. We made this stuff up not out of nowhere, but out of the tradition of the church as we seek to put words and practices around what we discern God doing. And the continued reforming activity of the people of God is to always be asking the question, what's helping and what's hindering the movement of the spirit? How do we lean more into God and what God is doing and not just simply get stuck in what we've always done? In the words of Yaroslav Pelikan, tradition, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We wanna live into the world in the wisdom of those who've gone before yet not be stuck in the rut of simply rinse and repeat religion, right? So Paul is there in Athens and he's experiencing what he sees as, he, he can recognize in them himself and the people that he's known, but he can also see that they're onto something, but they don't know. They don't know the living and true God. And so he tries to present it in a way that they can receive. I wonder what it would sound like if Paul showed up among us today. As I've thought about like, okay, how do we pull this text toward our own lives? I mean, there's a lot of ways we can do this um, helpfully and probably in arbitrary and weird ways. But I think... um, I've really thought about like what, imagine Paul showing up among us, Philadelphians and having the same kind of interaction with us. Like what would that sound like? You know, I see that you are very religious in all these ways. He might gesture toward the Comcast Center, right? Or the, you know, Citizens Bank Park or whatever, the places where that are like massive that we build, where we gather or where we invest our future hopes or the places where we go to make sure we're okay, like the bank but what would he key in on as our, long, our lingering questions? Those longings, right? As he'd be like, look, we're all made by one God. We all share in one humanity. God's given grace to all of us so that we may actually seek and come to know God. What would he key in on as our temples to the unknown God? What would be those portals that would be invitations for Paul to present the news of Jesus in ways that we would go, oh, this is what I've been looking for. You know, what he say, I see that you long for justice. I hear you talk about that. I, that. That longing is beautiful, but you don't even agree on what that word means. You can agree that it's elusive. You can agree that it's good, but you can't define it in a way that you all recognize that you're talking about the same thing. And you're pursuing it by unjust means and you keep shooting yourself in the foot as you strive for this thing that you can't define or agree on. But let me introduce you to the God I know who made all things and made the world to be just, who made the world to be the place of shalom where everything is in its right place and right relational order with a world that that thrives in wholeness and goodness. And let me introduce you not only to the God who created that world and intends for that, but who's so committed to seeing that come to fruition that he's willing to take on human flesh himself, step into the plane of human history, suffer human injustice, die under its weight so that God could raise him up and make him the firstborn of a new world that's just and lasts forever. And you know, would, that, would that be how he'd say it? Or our longings for beauty or for love or for spiritual fulfillment, what would it be? Like, what would he key in on? You know, you're, you long for beauty and you want it, but you just can't get past the fact that if you can't monetize it, it's not worth doing. And so beauty dies, on the altar of profit every time. But what about the God who creates for the sake of the goodness of creation, not just to use it for gain, but because it is good and who delights in what he's made. Who's not always you know, putting some external standard on it and critically engaging it to see if maybe it measures up to some standard of beauty, but who's able to gaze upon the goodness of creation and his beloved and say, you are mine. It is good. You are beautiful or you're longing for love. We long for the wholeness of relationship, but we're so terrified of risking the vulnerability required to go there. I can't imagine allowing you to know me fully enough for you to love me fully, because that's terrifying. We all know what happens in the shallowness of relationship that we just live with and settle for because we're just not willing to risk the vulnerability that is needed so that we would be fully known and therefore could possibly be fully loved. But would Paul key in on that and say, let me introduce you to the God I know who knows you to the core of your being, who loves you to the core of your being and doesn't recoil from you at all, but instead is willing to embrace you in Jesus and do all the heavy lifting of this relationship so that you can be in intimacy forever as known and loved, completely shame-free, completely exposed and loved forever. Whatever it would be, what would it sound like? I, I, I imagine Paul visiting us. And I think that the good news for us, if we allow it to hit our ears in these ways, this is what we need to become the kind of people who seek after the kind of wisdom that actually makes us wise, who do the the story editing work of the community, of sense-making around our lives, of community sense-making together, where we're understanding our own stories in light of the story God is telling, in light of the story of Jesus and the future promise of the world God is making so that we begin to orient our next steps toward God and the world he promises rather than toward whatever other little world we try to make by our own imagination and wisdom and strength. It's a beautiful story that centers on the uniqueness of Jesus. And I think that is just the invitation for us today. The same as for them, to recognize the beauty and the goodness and the wisdom that is uniquely in this person, Jesus, that speaks to our deepest longings and leads us into that world God is making. Friends, would you pray with me and join me in asking God to bless us by helping us to believe and act on this good news. Let's pray. Our God, you are good, you are faithful and wise, and we acknowledge that we need you to move toward us in love. We thank you that you loved us first and that we have this incredible privilege of now being free to understand who we are our belonging in the world, our belonging with one another, our work in the world, all of these things in light of this core reality that you know us and love us and have bound yourself to us forever. We thank you for this story from Acts where we see the apostle Paul sharing this good news of Jesus so winsomely with people who are more like us than some of the other audiences that we encounter in the scriptures. And I pray that your spirit would be here among us, helping us to see the beauty of Jesus and to hear the goodness of the news that you have raised up this one man, Jesus, and appointed him to be the one who will judge the world in righteousness and will make all things good and new and right. Will you help us to believe that? Will you help us to find hope in that? And will you help us to love you and our neighbors more fully more beautifully, more compellingly, and with more life-giving power as your spirit does this work in our midst. We ask your blessing through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.